How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Very nice, Mark. Although I must admit, this is one we sort of cut it off a little bit. Are you tired? Did I cut it off? Just a touch. No, I didn't. All right, fine. We can just say it's still an I am. It is. You know? That was my I am. You were doing great. So, yes, you got the book. Book. Do you really get me? Yep. Yeah, folks, you know, um, we are talking tonight about some very, very amazing um, writing, but let me first talk about the I am, just so we remember what what it is. Remember, the I am approach uh, that I've been working on since... 1982. 1982. Yeah. That's when MTV first came out, I think. Is it really? I think so. Makes sense. It could have been IMTV. (laughs) Yeah. Could have been. Nice. So um, the idea is this. Everyone's doing the best they can. Yeah. Instead of looking at people as sick and broken and not doing the best they can, which is only going to make people feel terrible and stressed out. If you're stressed out, you're going to increase your cortisol levels. If you increase your cortisol levels, you're going to be at risk for heart attacks and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and strokes. Let's forget about all that. What if we start looking at people as simply doing the best they can? at every moment in time with the potential to change in the very next second to another best you can. This is who I am. Right. right? Your current maximum potential, influenced by four domains, your home, no one's going to argue your home has had an influence on who you are, your social domain, which is the rest of the world, the biological domain of your brain and body, are you hungry, are you tired, are you digesting your lunch, and then the I see domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? You've heard me say this. Human beings are really interested in what other people think or feel. We call that empathy. We go, how are you feeling? But let's face it. What we really want to know, what are you thinking about us? Right. Uh, uh, really? Don't you? Th- it may be hard to admit, but isn't it true? What do you think, Mark? Isn't it true that we do care what people think about I, us? I think ultimately that is a big motivator for a lot of people. It is. When a- they wake up and take a shower and put their clothes on, it's all about how am I going to be viewed by others? Yes, it is. And the brain tool that we use to do that is called theory of mind. Mm -hmm. I didn't make that one up. Theory of mind, we can't see someone's mind, so we have to guess and theorize what are you thinking or feeling, what are you thinking or feeling about me. So what I believe is that these four domains interact all the time, but we respond to them the best we can. You know, we are a collection of cells, And as a collection of cells, a cell doesn't have a choice, really. And this isn't saying there is no free will. We can get into discussion about that. But we respond the best we can to these four domains. It doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean you have to condone your I am. It's not a free ride. You're going to be held responsible because everything you do has a natural consequence. And the I am isn't even saying you're going to be successful. And for me, the definition of success is when you love going to work and you love going home. Together. Yeah. Think about it. 
if you love going to work and love going home, what that really means is that you feel valued in both the social and the home domains. And that's what we want is to feel valuable. Mm -hmm. So instead of judging other people as less than and broken, the IM says, let's look again at why we do what we do. Think about the words, look again, again look, again like to repeat something, look like a spectator. IM says that's respect why people do what they do. Right. When's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? With respect? You can't talk to Ben, what do you think? I think all kinds of things, Doc, but I definitely have not been angry at someone that showed me respect before. Exactly right. How can you? How can you? Because anger is an emotion designed to change things. We get angry when we want somebody to do something different, start doing something or stop doing something, but being respected feels great. That's right. So we don't get angry. There's another book that I wrote on that called Outsmarting Anger, which you can think about getting. It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. And Audible. And Audible. And I read it. And we actually read it right here at WATD, the TSC station. Oh, look at that. So respect leads to value, which is what everybody wants. Think about every person you've ever met in your life, every one of them, the common thread. They want to feel valued by somebody else. Right. And what's cool is that at every and any moment in time, you can remind someone of their value. And whenever you do that, you increase your own value. Respect leads to value. Value leads to trust. And trust is the antidote to fear and anger and sadness. Because when you feel you can trust someone, you know you can make mistakes, take chances, be creative, without worrying that you're going to be judged as less than and broken. So the I am is basically saying, let's really think this one through. We have an opportunity to change the world, but you don't have to do it all at once. No, it's actually difficult it to change is. the world all it at is. once, right? And if you think you got to change everything, you're going right. to get overwhelmed. And if you're overwhelmed, you're going to feel angry, anxious, or sad. But because the domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. You make a small change in any domain, it can affect everything else. And one of the challenges that we have for our listeners and our viewers is what small change can you make this week to have a big effect? Because yeah. the second principle of the I am, everyone's got an I am, everyone's interested in what you think or feel about them, and you know it feels differently when you're treated with respect versus disrespect. This means you control no one, you influence everyone, and you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. So, on Facebook, I posted a small change that happened to me in 1978 that had a big effect. Small change. I was up in a summer camp. I was a counselor, and we were having a group session. There were no kids there yet. We were all in orientation, and through the door walked this woman who then chose to come over and sit next to me. That small change had a big effect because I wound up marrying that woman in 1987. That was Carol. And very easily, you could have chosen not to go to that session that night, right? That's absolutely right. Small change. Small change, big effect. So we don't need to change everything. Right. When you make that small change of reminding someone of their value, you can have an enormous effect, an enormous influence on someone. What about you, Mark? Give us a small change that had a big effect this week or sometime. Well, you know, interesting to bring it full circle to the Dr. Joe show. Uh, a couple summers ago, I was making my way through Rote Marine, and I saw you. Hadn't seen you in a while. And said, hey, Dr. Joe, heard you on the radio. 
it's a good show. And your response was, you want to come in? That's right. And, have a, and be on the show? And I said, sure, let's do that. And now 30-something episodes <laughs> later, <laughs> we're having, hopefully, some, we're having big effects on people. I hope so. And, and we have an incredible guest, Marty Thornley, the author of a new book, Painless. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. It seems very, very interesting. It's a novel. Right, it's a novel. Unlike, very you know, different we, than what we've done in right, the past. Right, because we, we have a lot of people who come on who've written these, you know, sort of self-help psychology books. We've had people talking about, you know, drinking and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but this, this is a novel. Mm -hmm. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Tell, tell us a bit about yourself and tell us about, obviously the book well uh so I, I grew up here on the south shore um went to film school and ended up in la for almost 18 years and i'm only back here another couple of years um i originally wrote the book as a screenplay um as part of my film industry and uh, that was the last thing that i wrote and that i tried to get made we got really close to having it funded but it fell through um and then i kind of just fell away i was done with the trying to get into the film industry and, and walked away from all that for a while um so it's a psychological horror story. Mm. Um, it's a clinical trial gone wrong, basically a mad scientist story. Huh. Um, a doctor is cured physical pain, and so the patients come to this clinic to get this procedure, and it works. It cures them of the physical pain, but their emotional pain gets exaggerated. Ooh. And so they mm. go a little nuts on themselves, on each other, eventually turn on the doctor, um, and it builds to this confrontation between the mad scientist doctor and these patients who are losing it after they go through this procedure. What an interesting wow. idea. So, yeah. and it's sort of chilling as well that if we get rid of our physical pain, it exposes our emotional pain. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with that? And put the microphone right sure. there. We go. Um, it's somewhat of a long story. It's basically a reaction to um, the horror films of, say, the early 2000s, like Saw and Hostel, which I saw as a bunch of gratuitous gore with no emotion or feeling behind it. And I, I just hated all of those movies because there was no suspense, there was no character development, no story. And it started as that, just a reaction to that, like what if these people in these mindless horror films couldn't feel the torture that was being done to them? Mm. And it kind of spun from there, and then how would that happen? Well, a doctor would have to come up with a cure, and then it, it changed from that, but that was the, the impetus of the whole thing. Huh. Mm. I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm <laughs> looking forward to reading it. I'm, I'm just going to turn the volume off on my phone because I suddenly realized I hadn't done that. Um, so, have you experienced any physical pain yourself or needed not to Not an extraordinary amount, you know, the occasional back pain or, and stuff like that. Oddly enough, uh, almost as soon as I finished writing it, I spent about a year with pretty bad back problems. <laughs> really? I, I don't know if that's karma or what, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I wrote a, you know, haha -ha funny joke about pain and, and I had a back problem. <laughs> yeah. yes. You never know. Yeah, mm -hmm. never everything happens for a reason. Mm. And so where where are you helping to go with this book? I mean it's a it's a really interesting concept. Mm -hmm. I mean honestly I wrote it for for personal reasons. Um it was I hadn't done anything creative in probably close to a decade. I had given up on the the film writing. Um and part of the the there was a small part of the screenplay where the doctor mentions, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical industry wouldn't be happy about this cure because they want to make money on the pills. Mm. Very small aspect of the film. Uh, and several years after I had written it and it went away, it was discovered that my brother had a problem with opioids. Hmm. Um, 
and a few years after that, he passed away of an overdose. Oh. So that's going on four years ago now. Um, so it was in the year after his death, um, you know, going through the mourning process and all that. And that was probably the biggest reason, but it was, I knew I had to do something creative again. And I didn't want to have the weight of thinking of a whole new story, which I would take a year to outline possibly with doing a script. I'm a big outliner. I need to see the whole thing before I can sit down. And I knew I couldn't do that, but I always liked this story. And I flipped through it again and realized there was more there that might connect to my personal story that I was going through at the moment than I had remembered. And mm. I just knew I had to write it, even if that meant a handful of copies to give to families and friends. And it would be a finished product, whereas writing a screenplay, you finish it and you feel good, but then you have to go find funding and a cast and director. And it may never happen. Like, this never happened. Right. But this was a... I could write it and self-publish online and it would be a physical thing that I could give to people. And if that's all that ever happened with it, that was good enough for me. And is that sort of also, just from a writing point of view, was that a sort of a catharsis for you? Or did it, I mean, did it help release some of these feelings of your own? Um, somewhat. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to explain because, you know, you get into the writing thing and it kind of, it can kind of just come. Right. It's not always conscious. Yeah. Um, I know that I purposely wanted to, uh, you know, in the, in the screenplay version, in the film world, you don't get a lot of character backstory. You can't see what's going on in someone's head, right. right? So I never knew a whole lot about the character's backstory. And I knew if I was going to write it as a book, I would have to get into each of the characters. Um, the main character in the movie, in the screenplay, just had a bad back mm -hmm. and went to this clinic. I didn't know a whole lot else about him. I didn't really, I never really explained how he got that bad back. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, maybe I can put a little of my brother's story into that. I made him a construction worker who fell and Th these are not necessarily details about my brother's life, but sure. he was an electrician, and um, uh, I, so I put little bits of my brother's story into different characters all along the way, and it, was, it wasn't necessarily his story, but it was a way for me to have some good memories creep right. into the book, and so in that way, it was, it was good for me, I think. And a horror story? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people don't unique. really, it really is, it's incredibly unique. People don't usually think about this when they think of horror stories. Well... You know, to me, it, people sometimes ask that, like, why would you write a horror story? And, you know, I laugh with my other friends that write horror stuff or suspense. But to me, it's suspense. It's, you know, there's some gruesome stuff in there. I don't know that I would call this one even scary. It's okay. it's gruesome. It's gory. It's suspenseful. Um, but I think good horror exposes certain things about society, about psychology. And you can you can open doors that other stories can't do because why are these people doing these things to themselves in mm -hmm. this book? And that hopefully is making people think about why other people they're doing things that people do every day hurting themselves and people are depressed people are obsessed people are addicted to things people are obsessed with whatever their thing is um this just made up this fake medical procedure to expose that all and exaggerate right. it but they're doing things that people do every day yeah i mean so it's a psychological drama and horror would you call it that? I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. Just some, some crazy stuff happens along the way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's so interesting because um, in in my world, in psychiatry, we do have people who purposefully hurt themselves. Right. Uh, and there's a whole chemistry that actually happens in the brain uh, called the endorphin response, mm -hmm. which is when you, we all, we all experience it. You know, you might have cut your cut yourself you know, by accident and you don't really feel the pain right away. Right. 
And that's because it's an endorphin that comes and blocks those pain receptors. Sure. And then about 20 minutes later, the pain receptors, you know, are exposed because the endorphin drifts away. Mm -hmm. And some people have such emotional pain that they want to numb themselves. And they think that by cutting themselves, they're going to numb themselves. They'll feel physical pain. Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating what happens because some people will, will purposely hurt themselves. And when you really asked him to dig into it no you know to yeah. really begin thinking about it it was really bad unconscious <laughs> thing i'm so sorry my even my unconscious work sometimes um you, you say so did you really feel pain or did you feel relief mm -hmm. and they feel relief and then about 20 minutes later they feel the physical pain and that relief is because the endorphin is actually a natural form of morphine mm -hmm. it's like heroin and that becomes the addictive thing right. so that they are cutting they will release this endorphin and but just like anything you develop a tolerance so folks have to either cut more frequently or more times in a session or deeper mm -hmm. and this is why it's so dangerous mm -hmm. it's still an im right because the brain is doing what the brain is going to do the cells are doing what the cells are going to do but they now have an option of doing something different so in your novel what are some of the what are some of the emotional pains and stories without giving the book away? Sure. What are some of the storylines of some of these folks? Um, you know, there's the there's the guy with the the anger problem who tries to be the tough guy, but really he had been beaten up, and he was, you know, the kind of the typical story. He had, he had his own weaknesses and covered it with being the tough guy and mm. um, and and lashing out in anger. So as he goes through this procedure, the anger gets amplified gets and he, he gets worse and worse you know um the this the the woman is uh had been to architect school and architecture school and is, has this great attention to detail and so she comes out and it just starts with noticing the paint on the wall or the cracks and then that turns into her noticing her hangnail and she becomes obsessed with the details in her hands and that is going to go from there and it gets you know, worse and worse with this obsession to detail. I'm getting, I'm, I gotta um, tell you, I'm getting goosebumps hearing that. <laughs> That's such a great observation. Go on, keep going. Um, so it, I tried to take little things like that that in the beginning just seemed like normal character traits, but what would happen if that is, if you're hyper-focused on that, right? Um, yeah. Very cool. And yes. the doctor? Um, well, the doctor... Uh, You'll see in the in the first couple pages there's a, there's a prologue that's years earlier with him as a as a child and um, there's a, a car accident where his mother is killed and then it cuts to years later and not much else is explained. I don't really know what happened to him between those years, but something snapped in him somewhere along the line and he's become obsessed himself with this cure. And even as the patients are going crazy, you wouldn't you know any good doctor would stop this terrible procedure because the, the patients are not doing well I, um so obviously he has something going on with himself too mm. wow sounds like a page turner so where can we get a copy of this yeah is it on amazon it's on amazon yeah paperback and kindle uh both on amazon yeah yep. good and it's called painless painless by Marty Thorne. Sounds great. I'm excited to read I, it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't help wonder about this, but do you think now maybe people will be more interested in actually doing the movie? Because uh, it is sort of an interesting reversal, because very often movies yeah. turn into screenplays. Yeah. But how often does a screenplay turn into a movie? 
I, I mean, in, in, certainly in this case, it usually starts that way. Let's just cut that. This is no, great. That's why we got Tom we here. We can't. Oh, sorry, sorry. How often does a screenplay turn into a novel? See that I don't know. Movies turn into novels, and novels turn into books, right. uh, or into 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 movies. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know how many you know turned a screenplay into the book without it going to a movie first. But yeah, I, I have joked about that because. Uh, Hollywood likes to see a, a thing that exists in the world, a TV show or a book or something right. where, you know, if I'm trying to convince them to make my screenplay, they push that aside. But now right. it's a real book. Right. Maybe that's more realistic. And right. Yeah, it might actually happen. Yeah. Interesting right. concept. Unique. Never heard anything like it. Yeah, I really haven't, especially, you know, with our opioid crisis. I mean, people uh, are taking these opioids and certainly are creating emotional pain. I never mm. really thought of it that mm. way. So what's what's your process? I mean, I'm I'm really interested in actually the the structural part, and I bet we have listeners who also want to write. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go about it, and and keeping it sort of all in in sight? Because you can get because I write, you can get so lost mm-hmm. yeah. writing and writing, and then you're doing this and you rewrite. Yeah. What's your process? Um, it, it, it comes from a lot of different directions. Um, I know some writers, I think it's because I came from the film world, I get a lot of structure. Um, screenplays are very specific number of pages and things happen on page 10 and 30 and 60 and 90 and so on. Mm. And you get used to this timing of films because you have that hour and a half to two hour window and you have to have certain things happen. Uh, a book can be fairly short. This one's fairly on the on the short side. Or it can be some monster thousand page book. You can't just make a movie that's I don't know if it's going to be a half hour, if it's going to be five hours, and you know right. you can't do that. Um, so I come from a very structural um, background from that angle, um, and that goes. There's a, any number of things. So you get into like the three act structure and certain things like that. So once you get once I've gotten used to that, I can kind of visualize and I have a sense in my head of how long each scene is going to take, how long each chapter is going to take, and I have a feeling for the whole story. Um, in between, then I'll take uh, I've, my method now is I, I use post-it notes and I, I make a little marker for a chapter or a scene um, that way I can move them around where you get an idea of the pacing this should go over here this should go over there I can adjust a little bit as I go so so the post-it notes are, are on a big board the post-it notes or where where are they actually uh, it, it actually this uh, when, so I came up with this technique first when I wrote the screenplay um, I had some old blueprints of my father's he works in construction so I had uh, two or three of those I took one for each act taped that up to the wall, and then that was Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and within that I could po- move around these post-it notes on the paper. And that turned into a, a perfect visual size for me to see. And yeah, p- post it up on a wall. Um, I could kind of see the whole thing in front of me. And so you actually went to school for this at Emerson, right? Yeah, right. Did you read a book, Story? Did yep. you read that? Big influence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you want, how? Because I, I was influenced by that too. How right. did that book influence your story? Uh, that it's so long ago, you know, I used to know that chapter and verse and right. it's, you know, it's, it's been a while. Um, but like I said, so at this point, it's just, the, I just, this, I feel the, yeah I feel the structure at this point, it. you know, yeah, I used to know that book very well. Uh, because in a story there, you know, there are these pivot points right. in a character's development where they have to make a choice right. and that choice will often reveal something about their character. There's a difference between caricature, which is sort of the facade, and character. And I think, you know, an example is, you know, a, a, a businessman 
uh, walks down a street and sees a dog and can kick the dog or pat the dog and how that says so much about the character. They're still the same person, they're wearing a suit, but the choice that they make and the choice that the audience sees mm -hmm. gives you an insight into the backstory, the darker or the not darker, the, the deeper character right. of that person. Yep. So how do you incorporate that? I'm putting you on the spot. Um, I know. Remember, no, I, but I think that's a, it's a great example of what I was uh, speaking to before, where you can't see what's in the character's head, right? That's so you right. have to find ways to demonstrate character. Yes. So yeah, the guy kicks a dog. Bad guy. He's has <laughs> something going on, right? The good guy's not going to come along and kick a dog. Right. Um, I know House of Cards started like that, right? With Kevin Spacey's choking an animal and you know, yeah. uh, to put him out of his misery, and. Um, my book might start that way too. It's uh, you know, it's it's a good sign that something's going on, and I think I, I, I did I did try to bring a lot of that along where I'm not going to explain everything still, even though it is a book, and I could write forever about what people are thinking. I I still try to leave actions to speak for themselves. I'm not going to tell you everything that's going on. I hope there are questions about why did they do that. Some of the reviews people leave like I don't understand why they did that, and to me that's the point. There's yeah. there's a mystery and a weirdness about why people are doing these things. Right, and, and that's that's part of why I really wanted you to come on the show because our other shows, we, we've really talked about how somebody can help themselves, the self-help stuff, or why banks have collapsed, things like that. But novels, they really ask the audience to, to explore who we are as human beings. Uh, based on our observations mm -hmm. and you know the second the second principle of, of the I am is you control no one you influence everyone and there's this thing this I see domain how do I see myself how do I think other people see me and that is the grist for a novel mm -hmm. you know, how how and why is a person doing what they're doing and in so many ways all our lives are these novels where we come up with these pivot points that we have to make a choice right right we have to make a choice and you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be yeah so w with that in mind what are you hoping the small change will be and what kind of influence do you want to be with a novel like this um i don't know i just i, I hope that people take it the kind of the way I, I intended which is that it's a fun horror story but also makes you think and that it's not just some it's not just some fun story. <laughs> some people will walk away with thinking that, but um, I do think there's an opportunity in, in this genre to to expose these psychological things that you can't do in, in other genres. Yeah. I don't know that I could tell this exact thing in just a drama or a comedy, the right. way that it comes across here. Right. And, th and there is a luxury also in writing a novel compared to a screenplay, mm -hmm. right? Because in a screenplay, you have to be so concise. Because... Right. I mean, think about think about the movies you've seen. The dialogue is there, but it is everything that is sort of encasing that dialogue. Yeah. The dialogue is way harder to write than people realize. Sure, and it, and it so it kind of goes both ways. I had uh, scenes in the in the screenplay that were you know the guy walks down the hall, but I can't just write that in the book. So that turns into four pages of what's going on in his head, and then. In a screenplay, like I said, a movie's a lot of dialogue, but a dialogue is incredibly boring in a book. So you can't just have three, four, five pages of dialogue going back and forth. That's not going to fly. So you have to cut out, like, they talked for a while, then came back, and you have to find a way around those things because it, the, it doesn't work in each world. Yeah. It's, huh. it's, 
a real challenge. I mean, I, I am so impressed with people who can write novels, but writing screenplays is so tough. It's really, it really is. It's, it's so much more it's, it's restrictive, and then, like I said, at the end, you have something that may not get made or may get twisted and turned by the actors, directors, producers into something else, and it's not the thing you wrote anymore, so it's, it's a strange world. So going back in time for you, yeah. why did you decide to go to Emerson at all? I mean, did you go there with the idea of doing screenplay? Oh, yeah, I wanted to write and direct. I, had, um, I was on my way to engineering school, and then somehow as a senior somewhere in there, I discovered Hitchcock films and, and, <laughs> and fell in love with the cinema, and I just thought that's that sounds more fun, that sounds interesting, and um, it was... I. I just saw something in, in Hitchcock where you, you can see his psychology in the camera, the way it moves around. Like, this is a... It's not just a guy making a movie. This is yeah. a psychology behind this camera movements. And that really got to me. Um, and then guys like David Lynch and stuff that I discovered later, Scorsese. Uh, but Hitchcock was the first one. I, I, I saw maybe two of his movies and thought, I think that's what I want to do. Do you remember which ones they were? Um, I think Spellbound maybe was one of the first big ones. Hmm. Um, birds, a, a, on birds top of freaked the, me out when yeah. I was a kid. Birds, birds. That, that got you. Yeah. What got to you about? I don't that? know. It was just the uh, the mob of it, the mob scenes that the guy goes to the gas station and all of a sudden all the birds just come flocking <laughs> down. But there was something very different about his directorial prowess and how he how he did those things. Yeah. Very different. Mm-hmm. Very, very ahead of his time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically created an entire genre that people then followed. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what inspired you. Pretty much, yeah. And then you go through Emerson, and then what happens? Uh, through the, they have an LA program, and I did an internship as the last part of my senior year, and then moved out there immediately after, came back for graduation, and got in a car and drove back out with a few other friends from this area and yeah made it happen and how long were you out in LA uh, 18 years whoa yeah just came back early 2017 welcome home thank you <laughs> welcome home what were you doing out there other than doing your own personal uh, writing I actually I hadn't written in a while um since I, I gave up on that one uh or since that fell through with the funding um I ended up turning myself into a web developer and been doing that the last 10, 12 years, so, yeah. And I still do that. You do? Yep. So how do people get in touch with you for that? Uh, they don't. I, I, I work for for the Dis- for Walt Disney Company right now. You oh. do? I'm a, I'm a contractor, and I just I work full-time from home, and, yeah. Um, so I, I don't do, like, clients. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, I, th- I think that that <laughs> probably opens a, a whole another area that we can talk about as they well. They probably won't make this one. They won't make this one? I don't think so. Mm, they won't. They won't. <laughs> this isn't part of their it's Disney. Not, I don't think it's their, uh, their, yeah, their Disney, brand. <laughs> Disney genre. We couldn't yeah. turn it into a Mulan or something. Like, <laughs> I don't think no, so. That was was that Disney? Mulan Rouge. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the opioid epidemic. Yeah. Epidemic. Epi. <laughs> Epi pen. I thought I. <laughs> Yes, epidemic. That's, yeah, your, that's it, my idea. You know, it's nothing to laugh about. But, but you've been personally, personally uh, influenced by this. And, oh. you know, you, you told us a little bit about your brother. But, you know, we we talk a lot about the opioid crisis. And I, I really think that this book is a metaphor in so many ways mm. for that. Yeah. So 
Can you talk a little bit about your personal experience with this? And sure, yeah. Um, and I, I'm by no means an expert on the opioid epidemic by any means beyond that it touched me personally with the with the loss of a brother. But well, let me let me let me comment right there. Sure. Yes, in that way you are the expert. Yeah. I'm just a professional. Right. But you've lived this, so yes, you are an expert in this in terms of the personal right. experience you've had with your brother. Um, all I, I can say a few things. I know that um, when I found out that he had uh, that the cause of death was an overdose of fentanyl, that was the first time I ever heard that word. Hmm. And that was just four years ago. Um, I feel like that might have been the turning point anyway where that word was coming more prominent. I knew about, say, oxys or Percocets or whatever. I'd heard those terms before, but I'd never heard fentanyl. Now it's that was Prince, the cause of death with Prince, and it's right. the, it's the word that's all over the news every day now. Um, and I know that I've done uh, a couple, you know, local groups to talk about the book. And when I explain that story about why I wrote it and about my brother, I've had just in one meeting, two or three people come up after and said, uh, one one woman had lost a, uh, I think it was a sister and a and a goddaughter within the last couple of years. Um, Another one had a you know relative going through it right now. They were still you know going through the addiction process, and um, these are people I see fairly often, and it never come up. And I think that's interesting that as much as you hear about it on the news, we don't talk about it as as people every day. But as soon as it comes up, it seems like everyone or half the people in the room have some connection, which I find even more terrifying. That as much as you think it's a problem, you have no idea until you talk about it and see everyone's head turn yeah it's even bigger than than it seems like it is that's part of what we do at drug story theater um where in the talk back of the show i will ask the audience how many people here you know know someone or personally yeah. lost someone to the opioid crisis and it's just stunning how many hands go up yeah how many hands go up um so what do you do when those people come up to you and, and how do you share your own personal experience? I, I don't know. I think it's just enough to say that we went through it too, right? Like I, I don't know what to say. There's nothing right to say. Um, you know, I know, uh, especially that, that first year after I, I dreaded people asking me, how are you doing? What's going on? Because you don't want to talk about it, right? There's, there's no good thing they can say. They can't say, I'm sorry for your loss. You can't say any of that. Um, it wasn't someone old and dying of cancer where you can say at least they're out of their, you know, they're not in, they're not hurting anymore. It's not that. It's you don't want that to end. Um, so I don't know. There's no right thing to say. I think all you can do is just say, "I've been there too," and that was their reaction too. We just kind of go, "Oh, that was me too." And yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I've been working with this population for a while now, and from the IC point of view. So many of the family members that survive are struggling with really how they're feeling because sometimes, you know, obviously they're sad and the loss. Sometimes they're so angry. And, and it's unclear sometimes who they're angry with. Are they angry with the person that has died, with the initial prescriber? You know, there are so many people there um and you know what we what we try to do is remind people that 
you know, addiction is not about morality, it's about mm -hmm. mortality. It's just, it's just the way the brain's gonna work. Yeah. And these are not bad people. One of the other things I say is addiction is not a crime, but can lead to them. And one of the mm -hmm. biggest crimes is that we turn our backs on the people who need us the most. Absolutely. You know? Um, so that was the first time you'd heard of fentanyl, but, but was, was it a, did you know your brother was, was struggling with this? Yeah, for a couple of years previously, yeah. Um, I don't know that I knew everything that was going on, but you know, he had, uh, yeah, had gone down the typical path of, uh, you know, doing terrible things and. But, you know. but did it start with prescription? I mean, I, I, again, and I don't know, and I honestly don't know some of it because um, it, it's hard to tell when some of that might start. You know, right. we just know it, it came out at some point. There were money problems and stuff like that. So it, there were clues that appeared, and then he admitted it to my parents and stuff like that. So I, I don't know a lot of the in between details, to be honest. And okay, uh, and, and even towards the end, I don't know. Had he, I thought he had maybe been okay for a while, but. You don't want maybe you just go back that one time. You know, there's, there's so much mystery with because you can't trust that they're telling you the truth about anything. They they cover all of it up. So even when they seem fine, you don't know for sure right. what the details are behind the scenes. And it's know. so important for people in the family to know. That, I mean, my take on why people covering it up is because they still care what other people think about yeah. them. Mm -hmm. And so. They're lying, not because they want to hurt you, but they care what you think or feel about them. Sure, yeah. It's it's you know it's a really important distinction for people to make. Yeah. Because otherwise we get so angry that we have been deceived. Remember, mm -hmm. everybody has an IC, everybody has an IM. We want people to value us, and we feel that we're not being valued. Right. But in reality, we're being valued remarkably because a person. Is unfortunately ashamed. So many are ashamed. Sure, absolutely. Do you think that that there's part of that in this book? You know, maybe talking about doctors who, you know, may may be prescribing. In this case, you know, doing a surgery. That that, that sometimes doctors are insensitive to what they're doing, or that they don't care, or. I mean, is that part of what the book is is talking about? Um, not necessarily. I, I definitely think that is there with some of the doctors prescribing this stuff. There's definitely some that should be in jail for what they've done. Um, they know that they're just shoving these pills towards people, and uh, I don't I don't know how you sleep at night if you're one of those people. I really don't. Mm -hmm. um, and what about what about the doctor in in painless? Um, I think in his own way he he means well. <laughs> he thinks he's, you know, if I can if I can stop people from hurting. I think he, he had he started with a good intention at one point, maybe as a child, and then uh, somehow came up with this cure, and you know through his own obsession became kind of twisted in his seeking of that goal. But um, I think like any any good interesting bad guy has to in his own mind think he's doing the right thing. So he is a bad guy. Oh, he's a, well, he's a mad scientist. He's yeah. a mad he's scientist. A, he's a, yeah, he's got problems. <laughs> the mad scientist. <laughs> he's got problems. 
Yeah. So what kind of problems does he have? Well, for when he's experimenting on people in a clinical trial, I mean, you know. Okay. Um, but he's doing it with a good purpose. I, mean, I think his, no. His well, he, he's like I said. He started, I think, with that in mind. Um, but some things happened to him that that twisted his mind, and um, you'll have to read the book. Yeah, I don't. I don't, okay. don't want to give it all. Yeah, I, like I like it. it. I like Absolutely. it too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can find that on Amazon. Yeah. Painless <laughs> by Marty Thornley. You know, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it as well. And do you get a chance, like, to, you know, you're at a party or something? I mean, do you, somebody say, so what are you doing now, Marty? And you say, yeah, I wrote this novel. What's that like? To, to uh, say that? Yeah, I don't know, because it's, that was the honest answer at one point. That was kind of all I was doing. Uh, I was just writing a book, and you definitely get a weird reaction because it's not what everyone does, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah it's interesting, but it, you know, well, I, I, know. <laughs> I, I sort of feel like that. I, I, you know, I was really hoping that that that's what this Dr. Joe show is about. Is as if we're you know we're chatting and we're just talking about you know this part of your life. You know, and I I really appreciate you being able to to talk about it and so honestly and openly in front of in front of all these strangers. And and that you know that is not an insignificant thing to be able to do because we all have secrets. Yep. Right, and secrets aren't secrets because of what we've done. Secrets are secrets because we worry someone will judge me if they know my secret. Right, um, and it is—it's part of an I am. But what the I am is trying to say is you don't need to keep a secret anymore, because the I am is saying we won't judge you. We're going to look again at why you do what you do, why people do what they do, without the judgment, which allows people to feel respected and valued, and that leads to trust and you know I, I want I want people who are listening to recognize that if you have someone who is struggling with pain in any way whether it's an addiction or whether it's a physical component whatever it is they need you and yeah. you can do remarkable things to relieve that pain by just nothing else bearing witness and listening and just sharing and just being there and not judging and I, I was talking with um, with a person today who is so ashamed uh, about what they did in terms of the drinking and the drugging and all that stuff and how their parents um, were also ashamed not of the kid, but they were ashamed that they had done something wrong as well. They weren't good parents. That they weren't good parents, that they should have uh, I bet that done happens better. every day. It happens a lot. Sure. And so um, I love the idea of things being painless. But the reality is, folks, we are designed to experience mm -hmm. but also endure pain. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's an I am. It's part of the way our brains and bodies are designed. That we will, we will encounter situations where we have pain. But it's what we do with it. And the, never worry alone. Always find someone to share that worry with. Because you're not alone. She said, I'm sorry, did I go off on that? I got all like, preach, I'm so sorry. But it is an incredible novel. I really hope people... 
can get it, buy it. They can get it where? Just on Amazon? Amazon. It's paperback and Kindle, available on Amazon. Thanks so much for tuning in. Marty, thanks so much. Thank you. Really appreciate you being here. Great book. Can't wait to read it. Thank you, Marty. All right. Bye, guys. Van Gogh.